So tonight we are uh, going to be looking at the law and gospel uh, paradigm or distinction. And some of you may be familiar with that language, others not. Of course, law and gospel uh, are familiar terms to us. Law and gospel. Those are not new uh, terms to us, but uh, what we're going to focus on tonight is an, a hermeneutical understanding, thinking about the Bible and how we interpret and read the Bible in light of these two categories. When we talk about a hermeneutical distinction, when we talk about hermeneutics, we're discussing how it is we read what is on the page and interpret it, how we are to understand God's Word. And so that's the topic of hermeneutics and and uh, there are many aspects of hermeneutics that we could talk about. I did a class uh, a couple of years ago on hermeneutics that lasted a year and a half. So we could go on for a while in, uh, on that topic, and it's, uh, it's something that I love to do. Tonight we want to focus, however, simply on this distinction between law and gospel. And uh, we're going to dig into that a little bit. I want to read a quote here from a... Uh, a Scottish author named John Cahoon. It's a book called The Treatise on the Law and Gospel. And this is, this is what he says on this topic. The law and the gospel are the principal parts of divine revelation. Or rather, they are the center, sum, and substance of all the other parts of it. Every passage of Scripture is either law or gospel, or is capable of being referred either to the one or to the other. If then a man cannot distinguish a right between the law and the gospel, he cannot rightly understand so much as a single article of divine truth. If he does not have spiritual and just apprehensions of the holy law, he cannot have spiritual and transforming discoveries of the glorious gospel. And, on the other hand, if his view of the gospel is erroneous, his notions of the law cannot be right. And so, Cahoon there uh, obviously lays a lot of store by being able to distinguish and understand the difference between law and gospel. And so we want to spend some time tonight looking at uh, these two topics. If we were to talk about law... What's the first thing that comes to mind? Ten yeah, Ten Commandments, right? Probably Mosaic Law, right? Those are the things that come to mind right off the bat when we talk about law, and, and rightly so, because uh, when we read in Scripture, often any discussion of the law uh, in those terms is a discussion of the Mosaic Law, the Old Covenant Law, the Old Testament Law, maybe the Ten Commandments, uh, something like that. But when we come to this topic in our discussion today and we talk about the Ten Commandments or, or, or whatever, those aren't the only references to law. Really, the law, as we're talking about it here, is found certainly in the Old Testament, but it's also found in the New Testament. The law is found in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, in fact, the law, when we talk about it in these terms, the law is any command in Scripture. 
any demand of God in Scripture. would be considered law. Whether it's in the Old Testament, whether it's in the New Testament, any demand, any command of God that we see in Scripture would be considered law. Okay? We could summarize it if we want to be able to have a handle on what is law. It would be summarized by this word, do. It tells you to do something, whatever that thing is, okay? It would be summarized that way. If I could have someone look up for us, Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 5. Leviticus 18 and verse 5 kind of gives us a little bit of a summary of what we mean by law. Can someone read that for us, please? You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. If a person does them, he shall live by them. Right? I am the Lord. And so we see that that's the idea of do. Do this thing, whatever that thing might be. And that, in this discussion, is what we mean by law. Okay? And so, for example, if you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10 will be a familiar passage, and I want to look just at verses 25 through 28. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So his question is this. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. How is that law? I mean, the man was asking about eternal life. It seems like if we're talking about eternal life, we should be talking about the gospel, right? But what is the question and what is the answer given in this paragraph? The man asks, what do I need to do? And Jesus said, well, if you want to talk about what to do, I'll tell you. And he lays it out. Or he, he asks him, how do you read the law? And the man lays it out, right? And what does the man say? Yeah, he, he answers correctly, by the way. The greatest commandment, right, is to love God with all of your capacity, with all your being, and the second commandment is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's interesting because he's talking about how do you read the law, Jesus says. What is the essence of the law? 
And what is the answer the man gave that Jesus confirmed? It's love. Is love a do thing? It is a do thing, isn't it? The essence of the law, according to this paragraph here, and in other places where uh, Jesus talks about what is the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment, both of them are love and love. Love God with all your capacity is the essence of the law. Love your neighbor with all your capacity or as yourself is the essence of the law. The essence of the law is love. Sometimes you'll hear uh, writers uh, or, or speakers talk about law versus love, right? But according to the words of Jesus, at least in this passage and in other passages, the essence of the law is love, right? That's, that's law. That might cause us to think a little bit differently about some of the things uh, that we read in Scripture. So what is gospel? I'm not asking what are the four gospels. We know what the four gospels are. Uh, nor am I uh, talking about the gospel exactly identically as I talked about it this morning in, uh, in Romans chapter 1, though, though certainly it relates closely to it. But I think uh, we, can, we can work through this and, and come up with an understanding of what gospel is. Do you find gospel in the New Testament? Yes, right? So it's in the New Testament. Do you find it in the Old Testament? You do. Right? If you remember in Genesis 15, promise was made to Abraham. Abraham believed that promise. And what does that passage say about Abraham? He believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. He received the gospel. He received gospel. He received the promise of God. In other words, just like the law is found in Old Testament, New Testament, the gospel is found in Old Testament and New Testament. Law is any command of God, what God demands, what, what, what the law demands. Gospel is what God gives. The gospel is what God gives, what He graciously provides. In other words, where the law says do, what does the gospel say? Done. The law points you to what you are to do, even if it's something like love God, love your neighbor. That is law. The gospel points you to what has been done, what has been accomplished. Now, I think uh, we already talked briefly about the Genesis 15, 6 passage, but if you turn to Romans chapter 8, and uh, that great passage there, we, I mean, we could read really most of Romans chapter 8, and it would be on this topic, but for us... I want us to read, starting in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done 
what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. See, the law says do this thing. And it's weak. Why is the law weak? It's not that the law is bad. The law is good and right and, and true. But the problem is there's a weak link in the chain. Yes, it's Simi. <laughs> when the law tells us to do something, it is a good thing it tells us to do. When God commands something, it's because it's a good thing. But there is a weak link in the chain, and it's me. Right? We are that weak link. And so, therefore, the law is weak because it's just a command. It's on the outside, and it's compelling us to do something. It's telling us to do something, but it's not giving us the power to do something. And so what we read about here in Romans chapter 8 is the, the, the amazing news that, that what the law could not accomplish, Jesus accomplished. God has done, and He gives it to us. That's gospel. It is what is given to us, what God graciously provides. It's what's been done for us. So you can see that in the Old Testament. You can see that in the New Testament as well. But do you understand the basics between those two different concepts? Do we read commands in the New Testament? Oh, man. Right? I could keep reading and where, from where I am in, in uh, Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to get to Romans 12, and then bam, 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 bam. Commands right and left, right? We are told what to do again and again and again in the New Testament. Jesus doesn't hold back from that. No New Testament writer holds back from that. We have law in the New Testament, right? We have gospel in the New Testament and Old Testament as well, okay? And so for us to have this distinction, now we don't, we don't have, you know, I, even in this passage we had law. Uh, the word law mentioned in there several times. We have discussion about what God has done. But this, these are categories that you and I need to bring uh, into our Bible reading, recognizing that sometimes we are told what to do in Scripture. And sometimes we are told what has been done for us in Scripture. And we need to understand those two things when we come to Scripture. It's important for us who have God's Word in our hand that we be able to interpret it aright. And this is an important aspect that we keep these two things in mind and not confuse them, not shove them together and think that because it's God's Word and therefore it's good, it must all be gospel. Well, when we are told, love the Lord your God with all your heart, that is not gospel. That's a command. It's a demand. It is a good command, and it's a good demand, and we ought to love God with all of our capacity, but it is a command. It is a law placed upon us. And so if we think, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but if we receive that, we read that command and we say, well, it's in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus said it and uh, this guy said it and Jesus confirmed it and boy, that must be the way to eternal life. So I better get busy loving God with all my heart. 
right? And when I accomplish that, I will have obeyed God and I will have eternal life. What's the weakness of the law? We can't do it. Yes. We can't do it. Right? And so if I take that command of Scripture, though it's a good command, though loving God is something we want to do and, and something uh, by God's grace we are growing and doing, if we think that we are going to attain eternal life by means of that command, thinking it is somehow gospel, we will be sorely disappointed. And we will find actually frustration instead of life. So, I said I'm getting ahead of myself. The, what is law and gospel? This, this is a very basic kind of distinction that we can keep in mind when, uh, when we're reading Scripture. But why does it matter? Why does it matter? Is this, this is, is this just something that theologians think about? Is this just something that I need to think about in preparing my sermons so that I can uh, preach uh, well and the way I ought to? No, it's something that each of us needs to think about and have a grip on, have an understanding of this distinction for a couple of reasons. And I've already alluded to one, and that is um, one reason that it matters is because if we confuse these two, we confuse justification. If I read that law that says, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you will have eternal life. If I somehow understand that that is gospel, then I'm thinking the way to be made right with God is by this thing that I'm doing. Now, I may think God helps me in that. I may think that there are other things around me that might contribute to being able to do that. But if I think that the means of having peace with God is by obeying the law of God, if I have lumped these two together, I'm going to confuse justification. I will have, have lost the basic elements of justification. We, we've talked about justification uh, over and over, and in this uh, evening, we've, uh, evening time, um, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. The covenant of works being those demands that uh, were uh, law demands placed upon Adam, where Adam had the opportunity to be obedient and thus inherit eternal life, but he wasn't. And thus what he inherits is judgment. What he earns in himself is, is judgment, and what we earn from him is that same judgment. That's the problem. That's the deficit. And so if you and I, having inherited uh, that uh, sin from Adam, having inherited as well that sin nature and propensity to sin from Adam, if we go and try and do God's law in such a way that we're going to have eternal life, we're, we're, it's a non-starter. Because from the very beginning, every effort of ours is in some way, in many ways, tainted by this sin nature. We, we taint what we do and we start out in a place where we are already dead and deserving of judgment, right? And so this, this is not going to get us eternal life, right? The law is not going to get us eternal life. But then we move to what is the covenant of grace. And in the covenant of grace, we see that Jesus comes on the scene to fulfill the law of God and to give us the credit for it.
And so that by faith in Christ, we have right standing with God because it has been done for us and gifted to us by faith. That's justification. And so if we, if we maintain a distinction, then we have a clear understanding of what justification is about. We understand this debt, and we understand that it has been paid and given to us by faith. But if we group the two together, if we make them one, then we lose that entire aspect of Jesus fulfilling it for us. And we think somehow it's up to us to fulfill it. And yeah, God will help you, and God will give you grace, and, 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 but you have to climb that ladder. You see how you've made justification to be a different thing than what it really is by lumping the two together, and it becomes in some way something that you either earn by your own effort or you maintain by your own effort. That's what happens. That's what we lose. That's the danger. That's why it's important for us to maintain that distinction. For one thing, we can maintain the uh, doctrine of justification, which is all important. Secondly, and related very closely to that, if we maintain this distinction, we can have true assurance. Even what I read from Romans 8.1, Paul has essentially been arguing this aspect that that, that by law we were all guilty, but Jesus has fulfilled the law and given us credit for it by faith. And so he says in 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to explain why. There is assurance when we maintain the distinction between these two that, that I can know that even though I, I see lack and uh, I, I see weakness in myself and, and I know I don't have merit or credit before God to to, to say boldly, yes, I'm a Christian. I don't have that in here, I don't, I, but, I, but, but I have it in Jesus. And by faith in Christ, I can boldly say, yes, I have been made right with God. I have peace with God. I am a Christian because of what Christ has done, because I'm trusting in what He's done, not what I've done. I can have assurance that route. But if I glom these two together and I make it about uh, something that either I need to merit on my own somehow in order to acquire it or achieve it, or on the other hand, perhaps it's been gifted, but it's up to me to maintain it by what I do, how will I ever know that I've done enough work to have earned it or even to maintain it? The answer is I won't. There will always be the question mark. Have I done enough? Have I done enough? If any part of earning my salvation is up to me, or if any part of maintaining my salvation is up to me, I will fail. But when we maintain this distinction, we understand that Jesus has completed the law and given it to me, I can have great assurance. Not because I think I'm great and I've, I've done a good enough job, but because Jesus is great and He's done more than a good enough job. He's perfect. He's my Savior and my stance before God, my position before God is because of Him, is due to Him, is reliant upon what He has accomplished. Right? And so I can have assurance that doesn't wax and wane with whether I'm having a good day or a bad day. That's one reason it matters. 
And there's a third reason it matters. I alluded to this this morning, and that has to do with the aspect of Christian obedience. Christian obedience. We talked about the uh, Roman Catholic gospel as presented, particularly that Luther was dealing with, that, um, that, that you had to work the system to get to a point where you could be accepted with God. And all during that time, what's your motivation? What's your motivation? To put it in, the, in very crass terms, your motivation is to buy God off with your good works. God is a miser. He is stingy. He is a judge. And so I need to do enough stuff that I can buy Him off. Do you think that's honoring to Him for us to have that attitude? Not at all. Not at all. But that's, that's at the root of, of that, that notion that somehow I'm going to obey uh, enough to have eternal life. That I'm going to do enough good works that I can eventually pay God off and not have to worry about that debt anymore. And that is an awful motivation for our obedience. That I'm somehow um, um, working in such a way that, that, I can, that I think I can buy God off. As opposed to having a clear understanding of law and gospel. Having a clear understanding that, that this law demand has been met by Jesus and the obedience and the credit for it given to me, now having received a stance where I have no condemnation before God because I am in Christ, now when I obey God, there's nothing mercenary about it. It's like a parent, uh, a child obeying a parent that he loves. We love Him. We want to obey Him. We don't want to do those things that are offensive to Him. But we're not motivated out of desperation. We're not motivated out of self-gain. We're not motivated out of, out of uh, some mercenary notion that, that we're going to accumulate enough eventually that we can buy our freedom from God. Instead, it's been bought for us. It's been done and given to us, and now we get to be His children. And so when we obey, the motivation is entirely different. We hate that sin, and so we don't want to do it anymore. We love our Father, and so we want to obey Him and do what He says. We know that He is good and right and true, and the things He commands are as well, and so we want to do those things. Maintaining a clear distinction between these two helps us in regard to understanding Christian obedience. And so, the law, the commands to do, reveals that there is a weak link, and it's me. And that drives me to the gospel, where I find that Jesus has done the obedience. He has kept God's commands. The righteousness is His to give. And now, having come to Christ in the gospel and received from Him, now I want to obey. And what does my obedience look like? This is what my obedience looks like. I, I turn to the law, not because, not because it's the road I need to climb to get to the top of the mountain, 
not because it's the path I need to have to be able to maintain God's favor, but because this is the good command of my good Father. He would have me obey Him, and this is what He would have that obedience look like. And so now as one of His children, as one who has received what He's given in Christ, I turn to the law and I obey, imperfectly and all of that, but out of an entirely different heart than before. And so it matters a great deal. It matters in regards to the doctrine of justification. It matters in regard to our assurance, what remains for us to accomplish. It matters in regard to our Christian obedience. Now, I've alluded to, to an aspect of this even just now that, that I think we need to hit on for a moment. When we look at the law, when we read in Scripture and it gives us a command to do, and I see that command, what should it do to me? What should it reveal about me as I, as I see that command and I look at my own life and the command says, love the Lord your God with all of your capacity. What should I realize about my own performance in regard to that command? You can't. can't do it. Can't do it. Haven't done it. Can't do it, right? And that's what's so surprising about the Luke 18 passage we looked at this morning. That rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus said to just just lays out a bunch of the commands. That should have knocked him flat if he really understood them, if he really understood himself. That should have laid him low. But it didn't. It didn't. The commands were laid out there, and, and he said, well, I, you know, that's like, that's like JV stuff. I've done that. Give me something harder, Jesus. Right? He's got that attitude that, that he has accomplished what God has given him to do. That's ridiculous. How, how um, unself-aware is a man who thinks that he has kept all of those commands? And so what does Jesus do? Jesus, Jesus, we should probably turn there since not everybody was here for this morning. Luke chapter 18. There's a lot in this passage. We're going to skip the good teacher. Uh, Jesus, Jesus hits him on that, but then he moves on to a different topic. Luke 18, starting in verse 18, a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, he should have been knocked flat at this point. He should have been reeling with his head spinning. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, what did he say to him? One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus did not ease up on him. Jesus brought the law to bear in an even greater way. The commands that Jesus listed were all from the second table of the law, having to do with our love 
for our neighbor, except for one. He didn't list one of them. What was the one that he didn't list in the first time through? Coveting. And here he gets right to it. And he says, yeah, you may be a nice guy. And yeah, maybe you haven't committed adultery and you haven't done these other things. But how do you love your poor neighbor? Do you love your stuff more than you love your poor neighbor? And the answer that we see, because the man went away sad, we see that, yes, the man very much loved his stuff more than he loved his poor neighbor. You see, what Jesus was doing was he was bringing the law to bear on this man. And on the first pass through, the guy thought he was unscathed. And so Jesus goes back in and really strikes at the heart of the issue for this rich young man and, and brought to bear uh, the commandment that says about um, wanting your neighbor's stuff and your neighbor's uh, wife and, and all of that stuff. Do you love your neighbor more than you love your stuff? And this man loved his stuff. That's the law, right? So when we come to the law, it accuses us. It tells us where we fall short. And of course, when Jesus turned and uh, began to talk about in, in the Sermon on the Mount, and he, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, you've heard that it was said, um, you should not commit adultery, but I say to you, you've not understood the depth of that law. If you even look at a woman to lust for her, you've, you've broken that law, you've committed adultery, right? He, he takes it right down to the heart level. Jesus teaches that the commands go right down to our heart. And so when we encounter the commands, when we encounter the law in Scripture, it, it, it convicts us because we realize, I don't do that like I should. And it drives me to the one who does that like he should. It drives me to Jesus himself, the one who has obeyed God's law from the heart from the beginning and given me the credit for it so that I realize my need and then I come to a place where I see that need met in Christ. And I rejoice that He has obeyed, that He has kept God's law, and that credit is given to me. And man, I'm glad about that, because you go down the, the commands and you see that you've broken them all in one way or another. And He gives you credit for it, as if you had obeyed it, because Jesus did, as if all of your disobedience to it is taken away, because Jesus paid for it. And now you look at that command and you say, but it's a good command. And that's exactly what it looks like to obey God. That's what I want to do. And now, as a child of God, as one who has realized and remembered what Christ has done for me, the position that I have in Him, and that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, now I turn to the law and I seek to obey. And the power of the Spirit, motivated from a position of acceptance with God, out of a love for God because of what He has done for me. And so, you see the interaction of law and gospel there. We've got 12 minutes left, and I want to show us an example in Scripture. Go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And here we're going to see an example of this distinction between law and gospel in chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. First of all, in verse 10, let's see the law's demand. 
For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Right? We have, we have someone who is looking to rely on the works of the law, and this is specifically for salvation. Such a person who seeks to rely on the works of the law for their salvation is under a curse. Because this, the command, the standard is not God is going to judge on a curve and so if you can do a pretty good job at obeying these things then maybe He'll let you slide. What's the curse? Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. James tells us that if you obey the whole law and break just one point, you're guilty of breaking all of it. So if you're going to try to gain God's favor, if you're going to try to be saved by keeping the law, all you have waiting for you is the curse that is due upon the person who doesn't keep the entirety of the law. If that's the track you want to take, the standard is perfection from the heart forever. You can expect a curse And so there is a curse for disobedience. This is a very strong expression of the law or a description of what happens if you seek to be justified by the law. The demand of the law is perfection, to keep all of it. And the one who expects to gain God's favor by means of his effort is under a curse because he can't keep it. But... We move on and see this distinction between law and gospel in verses 11 and 12. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. He's just shown that. He's just demonstrated that. But now he gives another reason for it, quoting from the Old Testament from Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. How is it that a person is made righteous? Well, according to the Old Testament, it's by faith. In Habakkuk 2.4, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. You see what he's doing there is he is drawing this distinction that we've sought to point out. That if we're going to try and earn salvation by means of obedience to the law with all of the do's, love God and love neighbor, those sound like easy commands. Oh yeah, love God. Oh, I love him. I, I just really love him. Love your neighbor. Yeah, sure. But when you put any kind of feet on that, you realize that I don't love the way I'm supposed to, either my God or my neighbor. That's evident by all the commands that I break in regard to those things. If I'm seeking to be right with God based upon this, what can I expect according to our passage here? A curse, not a blessing. A curse. And he says... No one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by looking to what God has done. The law is not of faith. There's a distinction between the two. The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. You see the distinction? Either here I'm going to live because I do what God commands, or I'm going to live because God 
gives me life because Jesus has obeyed what God commands. And so you see a distinction, a sharp distinction in Paul's thinking between law and gospel here. And then you look at verses 13 and 14, and you see this gospel promise. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We were cursed under this system. He became a curse for us and thus redeemed us from the curse of the law. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Quoting from Deuteronomy 21 and verse 23. He takes that curse upon himself. He goes to the place of cursing. He is the one who is hanged on a tree and becomes a curse for us. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. He goes to that place of cursing. He stands here. Though he did obey the law, he takes on the punishment as if he had not, and he gives us the credit. Even we Gentiles get to come in and get to be joined in because we are in Christ, and thus we have that promised Holy Spirit that he talks about there in verse 14. And so when we read Scripture... We need to keep a clear mind about whether we are reading law or whether we are reading gospel. The law is good. The commands that we are given uh, for the expectations on our behavior, the things we ought to do, the things we ought to avoid, those are good commands from our good God to us and therefore are good. We just will not and cannot and do not attain salvation by some effort to keep those. Instead, we have Christ who has kept them all for us, and He has given us His grace. He has given us entry into Himself and thus peace with God. He has given us the gift of the Spirit within us. He has given us right standing with God. And then we turn to the law and read the passage that says, do this. And we say, okay, I want to do that. I want to do that because of the grace that I have received in Christ. I'm not going to be earning my salvation by means of that. I'm not going to be making God smile for me any bigger by doing that thing. I have His smile. I have His favor. And that's what it looks like to obey Him, which is now what I want to do. Not in some sort of mercenary fashion, thinking I will buy God off, but because He is my Father, and I love Him. He has poured out His grace upon me, has shown it in Christ in, in, in ways that are astounding, and they're new every morning. And so I look to His law, and I want to keep it. I want to do what He says. I want to love Him, and I want to love my neighbor. The, the motivation has changed. This passage here talks about the indwelling Holy Spirit, which, uh, who helps us in that process. But see, that's very different than coming to that same passage and, and just white-knuckling it because I'm going to do this thing so that I will have God's favor. I have it in Christ. And there is therefore not no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want to close with a quote here from John Owen, a great Puritan author speaking on this topic. 
And listen carefully to what he says. It's just one sentence, which for Owen can mean a paragraph. <laughs> but this one's pretty short. The doctrine of the law, indeed, humbles the soul for Christ. In other words, prepares the soul for Christ. When I encounter the law, it makes me realize my own need, my own weakness, my own failure, my need for Christ. The doctrine of the law indeed humbles the soul for Christ, but it is the doctrine of the gospel that humbles the soul in Christ. This one sends us in humility, finally, to Christ, humbles us for Christ, but it is the gospel that humbles us while we are in Christ because we're so amazed at the grace that God would pour out upon a sinner like me. And I'll wake up in the morning and He pours out more grace upon me. And I bring my sin to Him and I confess it. I confess my weakness and my shortcoming. And He pours out grace upon me in Christ. And it humbles me more and more and more. So, I, I can't encourage you enough to keep this distinction in your mind. It will, it will defend justification. It will protect the doctrine of justification. It will help you in your own assurance of salvation. And it will show you and help you understand about what Christian obedience accomplishes and what it looks like. And so uh, I, I, hope, I hope this becomes clear. And you ought, to, uh, you ought to think in these terms. You will be encouraged. You will be encouraged and helped. Uh, the Bible will become clear to you. And that's what Cahoon said at the beginning of our time here. He said that all of sacred Scripture is either law or gospel or is capable of being referred either to one or the other. And we need to be able to distinguish a right between law and gospel. He cannot rightly understand as much as a single article of divine faith as if he doesn't do that. We've got to be able to maintain the distinction between the demands and the gifts of God and how they work together. So that's way too fast, but an explanation of law and gospel in this paradigm, this distinction between the two, that you can see it closely relates to the topic of covenant theology, and it very closely relates to this time of year uh, and the celebration of the Reformation. Luther uh, trumpeted this, Calvin trumpeted this, and others of that era trumpeted this truth, and it is uh, one that we ought to take to heart as well, even for our own encouragement. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, uh, conclude our time tonight, we rejoice that you have given us all that you have in Christ. That we who have uh, failed the test of your law again and again, and every time we come to it, we realize even more deeply how we failed the test of your law. And if we were left to make our way into your presence by means of the law, we would never arrive. We would be those cursed ones because we've not done everything commanded in your law. But we thank you that we have Jesus who has 
obeyed, who has kept your law, who has met your standard, who is righteous, and himself became a curse for us, the ones who deserve the curse. And instead, we receive the blessing. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior. We, we are astounded and we are amazed. We are in wonder at our Savior and His love for us and what, what Christ has done, who Christ is, and all that He's accomplished on our behalf. And we rejoice in this. And I pray that you would send us forth this week that as we face the, the Mondays and the, and the, and the, the Wednesdays and, and all of the challenges of this week, may we look to what it is we have in Christ, who it is we have in Christ, even all that has been accomplished on our behalf, that we would rejoice in your smile of favor upon us. We know we don't deserve it, but Jesus does and has given it to us by faith in Him. And so we come to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.